Okay, this is John chapter 6, the first 15 verses. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not even be enough for each of them to get a little bit of bread. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat, sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Well, this past April, I turned 44 years old, and I'm beginning to realize that I am not as young as I used to be or as powerful as I once was. Proof in point, I have to wear reading glasses now. I mean, that's, that's a new thing. I have to take, like, wow, there's the volume. Hello. Um, I have to take uh, antacids now. What? Why do I have to take antacids? You know, like I eat Tums like it's candy. You know, what's the story? I realize that I'm not as young as I used to be. I have to wear contacts. I have to wear reading glasses. I'm not as, uh, my memory is just not as good anymore. You know, I stop mid-sentence and lose my train of thought. <laughs> I used to never do that. I used to never have to write things down on a calendar. I used to be able to remember stuff. You know, I have to set an alarm now. I used to just wake up and I have to set an alarm. Power is slipping away in my life slowly as I'm getting older. And, uh, you know, that shift begins to take place when you get older. When you're born, right, you're born powerless, right? You're a baby. Somebody has to take care of you. Your needs have to be met constantly by somebody outside of yourself, right? Then you get older, right, and you grow in your dependence or independence, right? And, And then what happens? As you grow older, what happens? You're no longer able to care for yourself as much. And eventually, if you grow old enough... Somebody else outside of yourself has to take care of you. You might even have to wear diapers again. Oh, no. (laughs) Right? And so what is it, this power that begins to seem to to ebb and flow in our life? That power, you know, seems to, to grow weaker and weaker. But there is, is it possible for you to have a power in your life that doesn't go away? And while I think physically, no, not necessarily Right there, we're always going to grow as we grow older. We're going to grow weaker and weaker. But I believe that there is a power that enables us to face the suffering and the obstacles in our lives that does grow when we're when we're anxious or when we're worrying or when we're losing control. Spiritually speaking, there is a power that can grow in us and will grow and grow and grow until we meet Jesus face to face. There's another power surging in our life that can give us tremendous hope that we can find rest in. And I think that's what we're going to see this morning in this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So what does the Apostle John, who wrote 
the Gospel of John. I want us to see as he recounts this story about Jesus this morning. Well, if you remember, John is very purposeful in what he writes in his Gospel. And he gives us these stories like the feeding of the 5,000. He gives us this story not just to show the raw power of Jesus, but he gives us this story to show that there's something behind this story that he wants to communicate to us about Jesus. So I think that John wants us to see three things about this Jesus this morning. So if you're taking notes, the, the titles here are the magnitude of Jesus' power, that John wants us to see the absolute magnitude of Jesus and his power. Second, secondly, John wants us to see the magnitude of his purpose in your life. And thirdly, John wants us to see the magnitude of his promises in your life. So let's firstly look at the magnitude of Jesus' power in your life. Well, even though this is a very well-known miracle, right, of Jesus, you can probably think of some other well-known miracles like Jesus changing the water into wine in John 2. And it's easy to let these familiar stories go into one ear and out the other, right? As you've learned them as a kid, maybe you're very familiar with it. So here's the challenge this morning. Don't dismiss this story if you've heard it. Because this passage shows us the absolute magnitude of the power of Jesus. This miracle, this sign, it's one of the most public miracles that Jesus performed. As a matter of fact, it's the only miracle that's included in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, why is that? Well, first of all, it was a very public miracle, wasn't it? You know, this miracle happened in front of, John tells us, 5,000 men. And it wasn't just, you know, where were all the other people? Was it just men in the, in the presence of Jesus in this miracle? No, it wasn't just 5,000 men. It was 5,000 men who were the heads of their families or their group, right? So if you think about that, there was men, there was women, there was children. So easily, the number wasn't just 5,000. It was 15,000 people or greater that witnessed this miracle publicly that Jesus performed. I don't know what the you know, unique population of Daleville, Troutville, Fincastle, and Buchanan is, but I don't imagine it's more than 15,000 people. Maybe I'm wrong. I've only lived here a little over a year, but 15,000, it basically would be our entire area witnessing this public miracle of Jesus, right? And it was such a miraculous thing, right? Such a public thing, in fact, that it's included in all four Gospels. 15,000 people plus witnessed this miracle, right? And for the 15,000 people there who had witnessed this miracle of Jesus uh, multiplying the loaves and fishes, the light started to turn on in their mind. The switches started to go off in their minds. All, start, all kind of stuff started to click in the minds of this crowd because these 15,000 people were Jewish, primarily. They were a Jewish audience, right? And so as they witnessed this miracle, this Jewish audience, all these Old Testament connections started to click or to pop in their minds. Look at verse 14, and uh, I believe, what page is this? If you want to follow along, I'm sorry I meant to tell you this, but in your pew Bible, if you want to follow along, it's page 891 in your pew Bible, John 6, 1 through 15. But look at verse 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely, huh, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Now for us, we don't automatically make these connections like the audience of John here. But to this audience, to these Jewish folks who witnessed this miracle, they were thinking, and, and John tells us that this was in the midst of the Passover. And you remember what the Passover was? The Jews would celebrate the Passover every year, and it was a celebration of, of God's work in their lives. The Passover really shaped the identity of the Jewish people, right? 
And what it was the Passover celebrating? It was celebrating the, uh, the deliverance of slavery from Egypt. And the Lord eventually led the Jews into the promised land, right? And uh, Moses, if you remember later on after the deliverance from Egypt, they're in the promised land and Moses asked the Lord to give his people food, right? And so when Jesus does this miracle, the, these Jews were beginning to make connections between the Passover story and Moses and what happened. And Jesus asked the same thing here, doesn't he, in this miracle? He says, where's the food going to come from? Just like in the Passover, just like in Exodus, Moses goes to the Lord and says, God, where's the food going to come from? Jesus here in this miracle, John 6, says, God, where's the food going to come from? But notice, in the Old Testament, Moses asks God, right, where's the food going to come from? And then he puts God to the test. And you can read that. It's in Numbers 11, that story. But here Jesus doesn't ask God, does he? he? He asks Philip and his disciples, hey, Philip, disciples, where's the food going to come from, right? And then he puts them to the test. Now, why does Jesus do this? Because Jesus is more here than just the new Moses, right? He is God himself, right? And so it's starting to dawn on this crowd who's witnessed this amazing miracle you know, their expectations are that Jesus, oh, Jesus is the new Moses. He must be like Moses. And so he can conjure up a miracle like Moses. A manna's going to fall from heaven, right? But Jesus doesn't call the manna down from on high, does he? Like Moses did in the Old Testament. It comes right there on the spot from his own hands, right? And so the crowd's making these connections. It's starting to hit the crowd that Jesus is... Not one who simply is a conduit who calls down the power of God, but he is the most high God that produces the manna, right? And so Jesus, in a sense here in John, is serving notice to this Jewish crowd of what the Messiah is. That your view of the Messiah, the coming Messiah, is way too small. He is much bigger than you think. And so that's the first thing that Jesus wants this crowd to see, that the power that he is displaying is the very power of the Most High God. The power that can bring life out of death. That can create bread that gives life. Now why is Jesus here in the midst of John displaying His power like this? Well, we like to think that we have a little bit of power in our own lives. Have you ever noticed little boys? You know, what is it with little boys? My nephew, uh, or great nephew, was here visiting with us last, last week. My, my brother's daughter's son he is a cutie. Caden is his name. He's a little bit older than a year old. And Caden, you know, he, you can ask Caden. Caden, flex your muscles. And he goes, ah, flex. That's what he does, you know. He's a little boy, and he already thinks at a year old that he's powerful. Men, you know you do this. Wake up in the morning, getting ready for work, brush your teeth. You know, you get out of the shower, and you're like, where's the gun show? Where's the gun show? It's that way, right? You know, you do that. You flex. What is it that men feel like we're powerful? People, we feel like we're powerful. We feel like we have a little bit of power in our lives, right? You, you meet a person, and that person tries to impress you, and so they start dropping names, like, let me make a few calls. I'm connected, you know, and they try to drop names. They may try to feel powerful, right? Well, that's not what Jesus is doing here, right? He's communicating who he is. He's not dropping names. Well, in a sense, he is. He's saying, I'm God, right? But he's communicating who he is, right? And you trace the source of where all this is coming from, and you find that Jesus is saying, listen, I am God himself. 
And so here, this morning, John kind of makes us face, who are we pursuing this Messiah, this Jesus? Are we just pursuing a miracle worker, right? Just another Moses who's going to give us things, right? Or do you realize that as you pursue Jesus, that you're pursuing God himself, and when you're connected to him, the potential for his power to surge through your life like a freight train is in place. You know, let me ask you this. Many of you, do you know why you come to Wellspring? Why do you come to church Sunday in and Sunday out? Are you here just for a little bit of inspiration? You want a little bit of inspiration so that you'll feel a little bit better about yourself so you can make it through the week? Because John's making you face the Messiah. He's making you face the Messiah that he's talking about and saying, listen, I have come to fill you with divine power, not just to give you a little bump or a little edge, but I've come to fill you with divine power. And so if you begin to understand the magnitude of his power, that leads us to our second point, the magnitude of his purpose and power in your life. You know, I've wondered why in this passage that Jesus doesn't just snap his fingers, right? Because he could have done that, right? He could have just snapped his fingers, but he doesn't. What does John say? He lifts up his eyes, he surveys the crowd, and he's filled with compassion. But why does he not just snap his fingers and everyone has little Bojangle chicken tinderboxes in their hands? You know, he could have done that, right? Bojangles didn't exist back then, but God could have done that. Bojangles could have showed up right then, but he doesn't do that, right? He, he doesn't do that. He instead says who he is, right? What does he do here? Instead of snapping his fingers and making food appear, what does he do? He involves others, doesn't he? And there's a huge point here. He tests his disciples. He pushes them. He actually brings them to a desperate place, right? See, the point John is making here is that Jesus was not just showing this raw display of power, but he was, his power was going to surge through his disciples for them to become channels or conduits of God's power and grace. Look at verse 5, six, five and 6. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already knew, Jesus already knew what he had in mind and what he was going to do. And I love verse 6. Jesus already knew what he was going to do, right? But he was testing his disciples. He was messing with them a little bit. And so he asked Philip anyway. And why does he do that? Because it's Jesus's, it's God's desire to involve us. It's his desire to involve us in his kingdom. Now, I would have never picked up on this if it wasn't for J.C. Ryle's commentary on John. Because right here, Ryle says that he has designed us, God has designed us to be channels of his grace and power in this world. To be channels of his grace and power and his power to surge through us. To carry us through this life. And I hope you believe that, beloved. I used to watch this show. I didn't watch it a whole lot, but I was a youth pastor in my previous life. Um, I'm still a youth pastor at heart. You know, we, my kids watch this show called Glee. I don't know if you ever watched that show, Glee. And it, it, you know, I, I actually love to sing and I love music. And so it was somewhat of an entertaining show. And my students used to watch Glee, so I watched it just so I could pretend like I knew what I was talking about with them, right? But I used to be in Glee Club in college. I still love, I love to sing, I really do. And I love to sing in, in choirs and in groups. And so I was, I was not good enough to be in like the honors choir in college. So I tried out and got shuffled to the Glee Club. But there were still some amazing singers in Glee Club in college. And so uh, my spot, I was a tenor. I was always placed between these two guys in Glee Club, Glee Club a guy named Choi, who was South Korean, uh, and a, another guy named Scott Dinkins. Choi and Scott Dinkins were both 
tenor uh, music performance majors. These guys, for four years, were studying voice professionally and wanted to become professional singers. And here I am, just this amateur guy who likes to sing, placed between Choi, who's the South Korean guy, and, and Scott Dinkins. And so we would sing and perform, and it's like I would start to belt out a note, and it's all of a sudden these two guys were going, Whoa! I mean, you know, it's like powerful voices, right? And I could hardly feel, hear myself. I kind of felt like Barney Fife. You know, you remember that episode when Gomer sings? Barney opens his mouth, and it's Gomer in the background going, Whoa! you know, I mean, that's kind of what I felt like. But I would love it because Choi and Scott had such beautiful voices, but they knew how to use their diaphragm and just seriously belt out some tone, right? And so I would just be drowned out. And sometimes I would just stop singing, not out of exasperation because they were 10 times louder than me, but because literally I could feel their voices resonating in my body. Their voices were that powerful. And it was just awesome. And I was just in awe hearing the beauty and the power of these guys' voices. And I think, you know, when my voice, my so-so voice was caught up in the voices of my friend Choi and my, my friend Scott, my voice never sounded so good, right? And I think that's really a picture, it's really what John's trying to show us here. I think that's really a picture of what it means to be a believer, a follower of Jesus. That Jesus says, listen, I want to stand behind you and sing through you. And you will know my power in your life and you will never sound so good if you let me sing through you and for you. And the amazing thing is that Jesus lets us use our own voice, our own little voice, our own meagerness, and yet he will sing through us to redeem the world. And that's an amazing thing. You see, he has designed you for an amazing purpose. All of you here in this room today, God's designed you for an amazing purpose, to be a broken instrument in his hands to bring about his plan of redemption and grace in a hurting and fallen world. And some of you may react to this and you think, oh, Stephen, I'm not. You don't understand. I, I, I don't really have any good gifts. I can't sing, you know. I, I, I can't speak in front of people. Shoot, I can't even pray out loud. I can barely even pray. I don't have much to offer. I just don't have really any gifts. Or maybe you think, well, I'm just too messed up. I'm too screwed up. You know, I've come from a broken background or I've made some mistakes or I'm divorced. So I don't know, fill in the blank. And you feel like, yeah, God can't use me. There's no way he can use me. And you're kind of feeling like the kid here in this passage. And John, the one who brought some loaves and fishes, right? And Andrew points this kid out to Jesus. He says, Jesus, here's this kid. He's got a few biscuits, barley biscuits. And barley biscuits are what the poorest of the poor ate. And a couple of little fish, insignificant things like this. Well, think about this. Those insignificant little things when placed in the hand of this insurmountable power in Jesus. Those little nothings turned into a feast for an entire city. 15,000 people. That's all the population of Daleville and Troutville and Fincastle. Those little measly things, those biscuits, few biscuits and fish put into the hands of this insurmountable power of Jesus. God in the flesh feeds an entire city. You know, what's the greatness? What's the, what's the magnitude of my gift that God might use me in his service? Because it's not the magnitude of your gift. It's not the measure of your ability or spiritual giftedness, right? And we, we think like this, don't we? Have you ever met, or maybe you've ever you've felt this way before when you've met somebody and you're not sure they're a Christian, but that you just really like them? They're great people. Have you ever said this? Man, they would make such an awesome believer. 
I wish they knew Jesus. They would be so awesome for the Lord, right? And we kind of measure people by their abilities or their giftedness. It's not the measure of your abilities or giftedness, the giftedness that God wants to use, right? It's not the magnitude of the gift, but it's in whose hands you place that gift. And you know, there are some of you who have never gotten out of first gear. Wellspring, hear this. There are some of you who have never gotten out of first gear because you really don't believe what I just said. No way that could happen, Stephen. There's no way God could use me, what I've done in my life. You know, even just recently, I maybe I've screwed up and I've made a mess of things. Go look at the genealogy of Jesus. I dare you. Go read Matthew 1. Get a simple commentary. Go online and type in, you know, commentary, Matthew Henry's commentary. That's a good one on Matthew 1. And read about the lineage of Jesus. Read about Jesus' family tree. See for yourself that Jesus' family tree was full of screw-ups that he descended from. It's filled with nothing but broken people, maybe even more broken than you are. And yet, Jesus comes from that lineage of broken and messed up people. It's an amazing story that I read a couple of years back, so I want to read it to you. It's a true story. It happened in 2007. And it's, a, it's about a guy named Ben Carpenter. Maybe some of you have heard this story, but this really happened in Michigan. At 3.30 p.m. on June 6, in 2007, a 21-year-old man with muscular dystrophy named Ben Carpenter drove his wheelchair down the sidewalk of Paw Paw, Michigan, right? And as he approached the street like he did every day, Ben would use his wheelchair and, and get himself to wherever he needed to go, and he would always come to this one particular intersection that he knew really well. And so he gets to this intersection of Red Arrow Highway and Hazen Street. And as he does so, the semi-truck comes and halts at the stoplight, okay? So Ben begins to cross his wheelchair from the north to south. And as he's doing so among the crosswalk, you know, he's just a few feet in in front of this towering semi-truck. Well, Ben had not finished getting across the street. I don't know if you've ever been in a big semi-truck before, but you can't see if you're in a truck and you're, here's your dashboard, you can't see what's directly in front of you because you're so much taller than what's on the street. So as the light turned green, this 52-year-old driver of this truck did not see Ben in his wheelchair. So with Ben still in front of this truck, the engine roared to life, and this mammoth truck began to pull forward. Well, you can imagine what happened. The truck struck Ben's wheelchair. The wheelchair chair turned as it hit it. It pivoted the wheelchair, and the the wheelchair turned facing forward. The handles of the wheelchair stuck in the grill of the front of this semi-truck, right? The wheelchair kept rolling and rolling. Ben had a seatbelt. He always buckled his seatbelt in his wheelchair. This is a true story, folks. I promise you. You can look it up. It really happened. He buckled his, you know, he had a seatbelt buckled. The truck driver was oblivious to the fact that Ben was in front of his truck sitting in a wheelchair. The truck picked up speed and soon was doing 50 miles an hour with Ben Stuck in his wheelchair, the driver oblivious to Ben in the front, pinned down, right? So this driver continues along his path, completely oblivious that Ben is in front of his truck. You know, people along the road are freaking out, whoa, you know, waving their hands, stop, stop, right? Two off-duty police officers notice and obviously jumped in their car and began to chase after the truck. And the truck driver just kept driving, again, oblivious to Ben. And so even behind the truck on, on the road were these two new parallel lines that marked where the rubber was wearing off of his wheelchair wheels, right? Well, finally, after two terrifying miles, the driver pulled into his trucking company parking lot, still clueless to the presence 
a Ben Carpenter attached to the front of his truck. Well, thankfully, Ben was unharmed, but now he had a story to tell for the rest of his life, right? True story. I mean, can you imagine? You'd be terrified, right? And there's nothing you can do. You're completely powerless and helpless, strapped to your wheelchair, doing 50 miles an hour, being pushed by, you know, 50-ton truck. What a story, right? And I think it's a perfect, I mean, it's a perfect picture of what we've been talking about so far here in John 6. You get the picture? That we're all like Ben Carpenter. Maybe, beloved, this is the best news for you that you need to hear this morning. You see, you're in a wheelchair. Every single one of you are in a wheelchair. You don't like to be told that. You'll resist that. But the truth is, spiritually speaking, you, beloved, all of you are in a wheelchair. You are crippled in every way, right? And think about this. Who did Jesus go and visit the most? The lame. The folks in a wheelchair if you will. Who did he go, who was he attracted to? Not the folks who were able or who had it together, but he went to the lame and to the blind and to the shunned and to the broken. They were the metaphors of the reality of who we are really spiritually speaking. You see, it's not about what we have to offer, but it's what his power can do with whatever we have. And seeing his power flourish inside of us and in our brokenness. It's true only when you begin to get this picture that you are in a wheelchair for the rest of your life that he begins to use you and steer you that you begin to get the purpose of, aha, that's what I've been designed for. That you want to use me, Jesus. And it's not about me. It's not about my giftedness. It's not about my ability, but it's about you. And glory be to you that I can sit back, I can embrace my wheelchair and watch you do amazing things. So quit trying to hide your brokenness. Stop it. Stop it. Stop trying to hide your brokenness. Stop trying to cover up your wheelchair with a nice, pretty-looking shawl. Don't try to spiff up your wheelchair. Just embrace it. See, you have to be like Philip and Andrew here in this story, that they had realized they had nothing to feed these people with, right? And the first step to knowing the power of God in your life is to admit your own powerlessness. To admit it. To embrace it. Now, I've been part of a, I've attended 12-step programs, 12-step meetings before, and they really are interesting groups, and, and they really are very useful for many people. And if you go to one of these 12-step recovery groups, or you, you can go online and just read what are the 12 steps of like Alcoholic Anonymous, if you read, the, the first step is this, is to admit your powerlessness. I am powerless. See, this is the unusual path, but it's true. This path of God's comfort and his power is to admit your powerlessness. Say, listen, I have nothing, Jesus, but you have everything, right? And that's the, only way, that's the only way to dispel the trick that we often play on ourselves that we are actually competent enough to run our own lives. Listen, folks, you're not. Let me be the bearer of the best news. I say this to our college students all the time. Cheer up. You're worse off than you could ever imagine. It's so true. So cheer up. You are not competent enough to run your own life. You're not. And neither am I. We have to admit our powerlessness before the Lord Jesus. And I know that's a tough message to hear, especially for those of you who still feel like you're accomplished and that you're good enough to run your own life. You're not. 
Or maybe you're realizing, you're realizing that I'm not competent enough to run my own life and I can't manage all of the relationships in my life. I can't manage my marriage and my own strength. I can't manage my children any longer. I am so weak. I can't even handle my emotions. I can't even manage my spiritual life. You know, if you're feeling any sense of despair, cheer up. Jesus and his grace is moving in you. That's proof of the Holy Spirit and his work in your life, that he's bringing you to a place just like he did with Andrew and Philip here, saying, listen, I'm not a surgeon who is trying to hurt you, but I'm a surgeon who's trying to heal you, right? And then lastly, we see the magnitude, not of his power, not only of his power and of his purposes, but we see the magnitude of his promise here. We see this at the very end because the the crowd responds to Jesus in a really interesting way here. Notice this. They're all fed, right? The crowd is fed. And there's so much leftovers, right, that there's just tons of food left over. Jesus here is the Lord of the feast. John shows us that, that Jesus here is presiding as Lord of the feast. He provides the people there more food than they can possibly fill themselves with. And what does he say in verse 14 and 15? After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So here's what the crowd was thinking. They were thinking to themselves, okay, when Moses went up onto the mountain, because you remember they were making all these connections with the Old Testament, when Moses went up to the mountain, he will be our mediator, and he will come down, and there will be one who will come as a prophet who will speak to us, as, as God speaks to us. And so this, this Jesus, we think that's who he is. He is the prophet. But they're not understanding Jesus the way they needed to understand him because notice in verse 15, Jesus realizes that the people are about to come and take him by force, right, and make him king. And so they went from prophet all of a sudden to king, right? But they're forgetting that, that Moses went up on the mountain not to be their prophet or not to be their king. Why did Moses go up on the mountain? To be their mediator, right? And so Jesus walks away, away from them because of their conception of him and what they thought he was. They thought he was prophet, that he would come and heal them over their diseases. He would speak to them good things. And then they all of a sudden wanted to make him king because they wanted him to be king so that he would squash all of their enemies, their, their Roman enemies, their oppressors, the Romans. And Jesus was saying, listen, no, 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 I'm not going to let you define me. I define myself. My father defines me. You're not going to define me. I'm not going to be your prophet. I am not going to be your king. I'm going to define who I am. I have come to be your mediator. I have come to be your mediator and your prophet and your king, right? And so, is this where your understanding of Jesus is? Because Jesus comes to you and says, listen, I'm not going to let you define me like you want to define me. I define myself. And so, we want Jesus to speak wisdom to us. We want Jesus to heal us, to fix some of our problems. We want him to be king so he can accomplish our agenda, right? You know, I've got a long list of stuff I need you to work on, Jesus, for me, right? And that's what we do when we elect a president. We elect him because we want him to work on issues that we find important, right? And so we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you to be my king. This crowd is coming to Jesus. Be our king, Jesus, so that you can work on things and issues that we want you to work on, right? And Jesus knew this, and so he leaves the crowd in the dark. And unless we realize that first Jesus became, came to be our mediator, our representative before God, our sacrifice, our priest, and by faith, by faith and in trust, we, we place all of our meager barley loaves and biscuits and fish into his hands, 
we always, we want to hold back. Oh, Jesus, I don't know if I can give you all this. I don't know if I can give you everything. We want to hold back. But then he comes in his grace and he melts our hearts. And we see that he has come as a prophet to speak truth into our lives. That he's come as a king to bring governance in our lives. But first and foremost, he's come to be a priest who gave his life for us. And until we realize that he came and gave all of himself for us, we don't realize and we won't realize the power that he longs to bring and surge through your life. So take your barley biscuits and your fish and your smallness and put them into his hands and watch him turn your life by his grace into a feast. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word and thank you, Jesus, that you are the bread of life. As Pete read earlier in our passage in Matthew 6, 25 through 35. Lord, I pray that we would feed on you and, and um, I pray that we wouldn't disqualify ourselves from, from serving you or, or following you or obeying you because we feel so sinful or messed up. Or we wouldn't try and disqualify ourselves because we're too fearful to follow you or serve you or to follow you where you want to take us. But I pray that, Lord, we would submit to you, that we would submit our littleness and our brokenness to you. I pray that um, maybe for some of us, we need to see that we really are in a wheelchair, spiritually speaking, that we're not as strong as we, we really thought we were. And, Lord, it's really your love and grace working in our lives that we begin to realize that and see that. And, as we begin to own that we are more messed up than we ever imagined, that's when you can begin to work in our hearts and minds and begin to begin that process of transformation from the inside out. So I pray this morning, would you um, humble us? And uh, Father, as we're humbled, that we would submit to you and then, then, then you would lift us up, that we would find our hope and encouragement in Christ alone and what he's done for us. Lord, thank you that you are indeed our mediator, the one that stands before us in God, a holy God who loves us, but yet at the same time we utterly deserve his judgment and wrath. And yet, Jesus, you as our mediator, you who came and lived a perfect and sinless life on this earth, you who came uh, and weren't killed, but you gave yourself over and allowed yourself to be killed, uh, allowed yourself to be persecuted, allowed yourself to die on that cross and then take our sins past, present, and future upon yourself. You are our great mediator. You are our great high priest and king. And that we can come to you uh, in all of our needs, and that, Lord, you receive us and love us because of your grace. Thank you, Lord. We love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand and